Hello, and welcome to Responsible, a podcast series in which senior leaders from all walks of life tell us about the experiences that made them and the wisdom they'd like to pass on. In today's episode, I speak with Anne Cairns. Cairns started her career working on oil and gas rigs because she thought it sounded interesting. The first of many professional experiences she's had as the only woman in the room. Eventually moving to investment banking, she held increasingly prestigious positions at Citibank, then led the dismantling of Lehman Brothers across Europe after its bankruptcy, and is currently the executive vice chair of MasterCard. Being the only woman in the room as often as she has led her to be a passionate advocate for diversity and inclusion in the workplace as the global chair of the 30% Club, a campaign led by CEOs and chairs to increase gender diversity on boards and in senior management. So you started your career in oil and gas with a degree in pure mathematics. How did you make that that choice? (laughs) Well, I, I went on to do a master's degree at Newcastle University in medical statistics, actually. But during that time, British Gas had a research station up in Newcastle and they contacted the university to say, have you got any statisticians graduating that could design experiments for physicists, engineers and chemists? And the university sent me along for an interview. And that's how I got the job. And what was your experience like working in that industry? I have, I have students now who still talk about it being a very, very challenging place for anyone. Well, I, I loved it, actually, because I got so involved with so many different things because I was deciding, you know, designing experiments for different uh, specializations, if you like. And I started to really enjoy the, the engineering side, predicting when pipes might explode or things like this. After about five years, I suddenly thought to myself, you know, this coal area, the most cutting edge thing is bringing gas in from the North Sea and the Irish Sea. And that's where I'd love to work. So I picked up the phone to the guy who ran the whole thing and told him that that's what I'd like to do. And he said, really, come down to London on the train and we'll discuss it. And so I ended up being the first woman to go on the offshore rigs. What was that experience like? It was very different. I think one of the things that was most challenging at the beginning was that you had to do a survival course. And there were 47 guys and me on this survival course. And I did it in April in the North Sea. And, you know, they basically simulate a helicopter crash. So you go underwater, you have to escape. They throw you in the sea from a lifeboat and you have to survive that. Um, What we discovered at that time, I was quite petite and I had a man's small rubber suit on. And of course, it provided no protection because my face was a bit pixie-ish and and all the water gushed back through my suit. So rather like the, you know, early women footballers, I had the wrong kit. So it was quite interesting, but I I enjoyed it a lot, actually. I learned a lot and uh, I got on very well with the, the guys who were running the platforms. Did anyone not survive getting thrown in the thrown in the sea? <laughs> well, the thing was that the guy who was running the course, he was a Royal Marine and he was making me do everything first, you know, escape from the helicopter, jump off the platform. And by day three, this was a one week course, I pulled him to one side and I said, you know, what's wrong with you? Why are you doing this to me? And he said, believe me, 
you know, you're a five foot three and a half woman and behind you are these huge guys who are terrified. And so if they see you doing this, a little girl, nobody's going to fail this course. So you had to be a role model before you'd even established yourself as a leader. Well, that seems to be right, yes. But I, And I do think that there is some truth that everybody standing behind me thought, oh, that can't be too bad. She's just done it. <laughs> so you're making me quite ashamed because last week um, of half term, we went to Scotland where there's uh, uh, one of the longest zip lines in the UK that I didn't realize taking my kids, I'd have to go on myself. And I spent the entire time screaming my head off with my eyes closed. <laughs> So I'm very impressed that you made it into the North Sea first and thrived there. So if that was if that was sort of an early leadership role, what were the more official leadership roles that you took on from there? Well, I, I ended up um, running offshore engineering planning for British Gas. And so I had quite a sizable team of about 50 people by the time I was um, 27, 28. And then, of course, when I got to just over 30, British Gas started to privatise and I thought I could see that the people at the top of the company weren't the engineers. They were people that had more finance qualifications. So I ended up becoming a banker then because I thought, you know, I really want to climb up a company and Citibank advertised in the Sunday Times and they recruited about 25 people across Europe to bring in who were what they called mid-career hires and I joined through that and, and ended up sort of in the first few years running um, teams um, supporting the dealing rooms and then on into the payments business, several hundred people across Europe. And then by the time I was in my late 30s, I, um, I became the head of operations and technology for the payment business around the world, which was a team of about 6,000 people. So it was just a gradual build over time. How did you find the shift of cultures from an offshore rig to, to investment banking? In what ways were the cultures similar or different? Yeah. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, when you're an engineer, you know and understand that everyone will survive if everyone does their job and follows their expertise and works as a team. I've often said I wouldn't like to walk across a bridge built by a bunch of investment bankers <laughs> because they're much more individual players and they're competing against each other. Um, so it's a pretty different environment. I would say in the payment side of the bank, it's much more like engineering because it's technical and you're building things and you're working with customers to co-create solutions. Uh, and I think that's why I migrated into that area, because that's what I like doing. So you, you just mentioned that you had you led increasingly large teams. What was the what were the things that you found rewarding or challenging as you learned how to manage more and more people? I had an old boss once that told me that we were all nodes in a network. And this was pre the Internet. So this was back in the early 90s. And I think that what you learn to do is you learn to influence people without necessarily directly managing them, or at least you're not using your authoritarian management skills as much. You're, you're actually using your persuasive skills. And I learned that quite young. And the other thing I learned was that 
you know, you can't run a global business by seeing the whites of everyone's eyes. So therefore, you really need to trust people to delegate to them, um, have people on the ground that really understand what they're doing and create a working environment that makes them successful. And I think that those two things put together are the way to actually manage any global job. So I learned that in my 30s and it was a really valuable lesson that I've taken with me the rest of my career. So what does responsible leadership mean to you then? How do you define that kind of concept? Well, in essence, I think you have to be decent to people and you have to treat people the way that you want to be treated. Um, so, for example, you know, as I was saying, I, I basically automatically trust people um, until they do something that shows me that they're not trustworthy. But I always start off with the premise that I trust them. I expect them to understand what they're doing. And if they don't, then I would trust them to contact me and say, I need help. I love to help people. So if anyone does that, you know, that's not a negative thing in my view. That's a really positive thing. But I'm not going to be like a helicopter mum and sort of hover over them and question everything they're doing. And, and if people do something that, you know, ultimately you wouldn't have agreed with, but they are in charge of a big group of people that re report through up to you, I would always stand behind them. Uh, even if I disagreed with them, because I think there's nothing worse than actually having a boss who's unsupportive. So all of these things, I think, come into that area. Well, trust is a really interesting orientation, because I think a lot of people struggle with extending trust first to others because it means that they are vulnerable, right? You're more likely to end up being a sucker if you extend trust first. And when I teach MBA students, I often try and persuade them that, yes, it's more likely that something negative might happen if you extend trust first, but you get so many more rewards for having done it because it, it, it elicits people's desire to reciprocate trust back. Yeah, that, that is completely right. And as I say, I, I just automatically do that. And it may be that, you know, I grew up in an environment where I felt that I could trust people as a young child. You know, people told me something. It was probably to help me. I, I didn't, didn't sort of feel, I don't feel vulnerable when I trust people. Um, I actually feel that it allows me to, you know, influence them, uh, you know, introduce them to other people in my network. And, and ultimately, if something does go wrong, and it will from time to time, then that's kind of transparent to everyone as well. And nobody would blame you for trusting someone and then things happening, as providing that you, you then take action to fix things, if you see what I mean. By the way, I, I love fixing things as well. That's, that's another <laughs> trait that I have. Well, you, you mentioned that you grew up in an environment where it was easy to trust. So, so what are the most important lessons you learned from the people that raised you? Oh, you know, my dad was a, a shoemaker and he was a northern man in, in Britain. Um, and you could have expected that it might be sort of quite a patriarchal household but it certainly wasn't. Uh, he told me from a young age that I could be anything I wanted to be. And I can remember 
being about 11 years old and the first man walking on the moon and saying to my dad, well, I think I'd, I'd like to be an astronaut. You know, fair enough. You're in a little mining village in the northeast of England. And he said, you know, why not? I'm sure you're quite capable of it. So I think that that feeling from your parents of confidence and support and be what you want to be without questioning anything about you is just simply wonderful. So you've mentioned that you like fixing things and that you like influencing without using authority. What do you consider your greatest strength as a leader? I actually manage through people. Uh, Though I have a maths degree, I'm not one of these managers who obsess about numbers. In fact, numbers are the easy part as far as I'm concerned. And what I really love to do is develop people. I really care about the relationships that I build. And I love to see people go on and be successful after they've worked with me. So I try and keep in contact with uh, as many people as I can. I feel really great, you know, when I get a call or a Um, an email or a WhatsApp or a LinkedIn from somebody saying, hey, you know, guess what I'm doing now? (laughs) And that gives me a great sense of pride. What are the strategies you use to develop people? It's a lot to do with um, A, trusting them, B, listening to them, um, uh, C, giving them the the room to actually experiment and try things for themselves without sort of telling them what to do all the time. You know, a lot of people have told me it's quite difficult to delegate. I find it very easy to delegate. Um, That's probably quite a strength. And of course, what you do when you delegate is that you are really growing your people because you're giving them responsibility. And as I said, if things go wrong, then being there for them, um, standing beside them, standing in front of them sometimes, um, uh, you know, hand on their back. Being the first into the sea. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. If that's what it takes. Um, So all of those things, I think it's just like, you know, your relationship with your family or your kids or whatever. I I, I can absolutely relate it to that. I I do think that there is an unwritten book about the lessons we learn about leadership from parenting that, that needs to get written. I feel like I've learned a lot about leadership from parenting. Correct, correct. I mean, I had my daughter when I was 37 and uh, I had been working so many years by then. I, you know, I was a bit tentative, you know, how's it going to be afterwards? Uh, I never thought of giving up work or anything like that. But, you know, I just wondered, you know, whether it would change me and it did change me. But I think I became a much better time manager. Yeah, because I wouldn't sit around the the office just, you know, continuing a meeting for no good reason. Not that I did that in the first place, but you know, I would want to actually get home and see my, my child. Um, and so I would be very efficient about what I was doing while making sure that, you know, everything was continuing to work well. So I think it does change you, but for the better. Well, you also get to learn a lot about how to influence people that might not be intrinsically motivated to put on their shoes for school or clean their rooms or you know (laughs) yeah absolutely and how to deal with a recalcitrant teenage daughter who who, you know is gonna fight you all the way (laughs) 
so uh, yes, that's uh, that's an interesting point. But also, how, you know, uh, what to put things in perspective. You know, what's really important in life, and what can uh, you know? What should you really be paying attention to? It's not just time management, but it's. I suppose it is. It's a bit of prioritization. But you know, often I come across people who get very stressed at work because some. Things happened during the day. Oh, I don't know. Their computers crashed and it's, uh, you know, the most awful thing on the planet. That's not the most awful thing on the planet. You know, something happening to your family, which you you got to respond to some illness or emergency is a much more awful thing than your computer crashing, isn't it? So I think it's perspective. Yeah, I absolutely agree. This, this next part of the interview, I just ask a few questions sort of quickly to get a sense of who you are as a person. The first one is, what is your favorite work of fiction and why? I'm afraid it's Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> I absolutely... Why are you afraid? <laughs> well, Fantastic it's such a cliche. And, you know, not only have I read the book about seven times and pro- can probably recite it, but... Um, I've seen set all of the movies and I frequently rewatch the BBC series, which I think is one of the best renditions of that book. So, yeah, I, I simply love it and because it's so clever. It's so witty. And um, I, I, I think you know, a lot of people see it as the, the ultimate love story, don't they? Although at this day and age, one could look at it and say, you know, a bit worrying, really. Mr. Darcy is probably seriously flawed. Well, most humans are. So, you know, writing fully fleshed out characters, I think, helps us learn about others' internal lives uh, in a way that you can only really get from immersing yourself in a great work of fiction. Mm -hmm. That's why I like that question. Do you have a secret skill? Well, when I when I first started as a young engineer, I hadn't really written an essay since I was about 15 years old. And uh, my boss asked asked me to write a scientific paper, uh, which I, I quite struggled with, to be honest. And then he said to me, don't worry, I see, you know, what you're coping with. I'm going to send you on a writing course. This was about three weeks in. And fortunately for me, this writing course also included a speed reading course. So I became a speed reader. So I can read several books a week. I can re- read, you know, a 400 page board paper in a, in a few hours. And of course, I can speed read emails and so forth. So it's been an absolute boon for my career and also um, a wonderful way to relax for me because reading is relaxing for me. Oh my God, now you want to make me take a course in speed reading. I feel I read very slowly. Do you have a personal motto? Trust that everything's going to be okay in the end. No matter what you're facing, I'm sure that, you know, you can get to a point where it becomes okay. The things that I've done, such as restructuring Lehman during Chapter 11, having that mindset of I might be in the middle of a tunnel, I can't see the end of it, but it's going to be okay. We're going to get there in the end. Yeah, so I guess that's my motto. Remain optimistic. Optimism. Oh, and that's been hard this year. How have you remained optimistic through through the challenges of this last year? It has been hard. And at the beginning, it was quite interesting for me because I used to travel about 40 weeks a year. 
Um, so initially I thought, oh my goodness, I'm grounded. And then I thought, oh, I've got lots more time on my hands. You know, maybe I can read a few more books and learn something else. But I found it very hard to concentrate. And I think that's a result of the stress um, that the pandemic brings um, affecting everyone's lives. Things that you think that you can achieve this year, you couldn't actually achieve because, you know, you were worried about the future, even though I, you know, I remained fairly optimistic that it's going to be okay. And I got very interested in all of the drug development and things like that. But I did have to cope with an ailing mom who's, you know, um, 91 in a couple of weeks. And that's been tough. And then I thought, what am I going to do if I'm not traveling around the world all the time? So I started speaking at lots of different venues, which again, on the plus side has been fantastic. You know, I could be speaking in Beijing in the morning and South Africa at lunch and um, America in the afternoon. And I started to do that to replace what my life was. And so I found some really big positives and some really big negatives because I absolutely love being with people. I'm a people person and I manage through people. Um, So I've missed the human interaction. I think there's something for me, the disconnect between my rational brain knows that all pandemics end, everyone that the world has experienced has ended. And I knew the the science and that the vaccines were successful, but the reptilian part of my brain was not being persuaded, right? So there's this disconnect between our emotional experience of pandemic and our rational one that I think has been hard sometimes to reconcile. I think that's right. And I think um, I, I think that the emotional experience has been very intense. Uh, I, I think one of the things though that struck me as I kept thinking about it was my goodness, what an absolutely fantastic life I have. You know, here I am sitting in, you know, lovely, lovely house, um, thinking about whether I'm going on to the next Zoom call, you know, apart from the things that were going on with my mom, which did sort of make me go travel up to Newcastle and she was in and out of hospital. There was things like that happening. But in the scheme of things, you know, I thought I am so much better off than billions of people um, that have much more difficult lives to cope with, that I, I actually felt quite blessed during this time. I actually felt felt quite thankful that I could live a nice life, even though we're in the middle of a pandemic. Well, I'm hoping that that's one of the outcomes of this period of history. My family, the first time we were able to just go to the high street, to the local Thai place for dinner, like no big shakes, And my six-year-old said, it's so fancy. And it really is not. And I said, really, why? And he said, because they serve food on plates. (laughs) (laughs) You don't do that at home. (laughs) Well, we do, but restaurant food for a year, if we've ever done, it comes in like plastic containers. So he thought that like a step up from the plastic takeaway to plates was like the, the height of height of luxury. So I'm hoping that uh, we can continue to, to hold on to that appreciation of those small things, whatever they are, right? 
Oh, completely. You know, the ability to hug your mom or to, um, you know, to go out for dinner, as you say, with your friends or relatives. And I, I went out to dinner in the northeast as soon as they opened up this year. And I think it was minus three degrees. I mean, we're sitting outside um, and the and the pub actually had a, a, a heater above your head, but your feet were completely freezing. My sister-in-law told me that she couldn't get to sleep that night because her feet were just frozen solid. It's it's amazing the kind of social experiences that we've been willing to to tolerate to have any kind of human connection, right? So I think that that's I'm interested in that too. You're if you're an extrovert and like being around people, having all of our human connection over screens is a very strange experience, right? So leading, leading through people when all of the people are two-dimensional, how, how has that been for you? What, what strategies have you had to manage that well? Well, it's, it's interesting because you and I have just met today and you know that if you actually know someone pretty well, then you have something like 70% plus ability to read their body language on a screen, So you can interact sort of fairly well. But if you don't know somebody, that drops to something like 10 to 20 percent maximum. So it becomes really difficult. And I think that I think when you're going for, say, job interviews, it must be incredibly difficult when you don't know people um, doing anything, actually. Um, And that's why I'm convinced that when we get through this, that we will go back to a kind of hybrid working situation where we're seeing people, we're also using the benefits of the technology to do, you know, interface with people who are in a different place. And it'll be much easier to do video calls and you'll be able to work from home if you're writing a paper, reading something, things that don't require interaction with people. Um, it will become more normal. But when you want to collaborate with your colleagues, I think that's when you go and see each other. Well, I know that you're a passionate advocate for inclusion um, and women's advancement, and you're very active in the 30% Club. Tell me a little bit about how you became an advocate in that domain, what you'd like to see going forward. Yeah, I think as you get older in the corporate world, and you've especially come up the ladder at a time when there were no women or very few women alongside you, you start to think, well, you hope that the world's going to change. And then when you see it hasn't changed fast enough, you become really concerned about this. Um, And because honestly, you know, I don't want my daughter having some of the same experiences of being the only woman. And in actual fact, she's 27 now and and working um, in a big tech company. And she's having... I would say a much worse time than I would expect her to have in terms of people's perception of women and, you know, the biases. It's it's not, it's not a level playing field anymore. And I'm not suggesting that we should fix the women. We need to fix the system. Also, I think you've got some responsibility as a senior person because you are high enough up, up the corporate ladder that people listen to what you say and you can be a role model and you can drive change. It's not just driving change in your own company, it's driving change on a global basis outside your company as well. 
again, I think that the more you go up the corporate ladder, the more confident that you are that you can do that. And you've built up a, a big network over the years. So all of these things kind of come together to be something which is probably you would describe it as a passion. But I think it's sort of just a necessary thing that we've got to help each other. And it still astounds me that business leaders uh, would think that it would be okay to recruit from only half the human race. How could you possibly have the best, the most talented people in your business if you did that? I mean, the only way I can describe it to make it seem more bizarre would be to say, let's just arbitrarily, dis, you know, uh, divide. I think it's seven people on the planet, seven billion people on the planet. Let's just arbitrarily just divide them in two halves, you know, and we're only going to cho choose from this three and a half billion over here, not that three and a half billion over there. <laughs> it's just just crazy. So uh, I just think it has to change. I don't think that the people who are, who make decisions in biased ways really understand or believe that that's what they are doing. So I think one of the things that's interested me in the last year is you've written about how the pandemic has finally made um, flexible working and working from home. Look, we pivoted that in a couple of months. It's feasible. Women largely have been asking about that for years and look how easy it was to, I mean, it's not easy, but look how feasible it was to make that transition very quickly. But the pandemic has been actually brutally hard on women's careers. So they've left the workforce at a much, much higher rate than men, been more, much more likely to leave their jobs or to move to part-time. And so the, the opportunities that the pandemic has opened up for different ways of working has come simultaneously with uh, some very detrimental outcomes um, for women's career advancement. How do you think those should be addressed going forwards? Well, I think the first thing is that the more we say it, the more everybody recognizes that's been the case. And so I think that we have to shout it from the rooftops. I think the second thing is that it's up to companies to say to themselves, how do I redress that and how do I balance it? But it's not just companies. I think it's wider society because the reason that women have been struggling during the pandemic apart from things like domestic violence, which has just been a horrendous increase around the world, is things like it's pretty obvious that women have been carrying the burden of rearing children or caring for their ailing parents. And, and why is that the case? Why should that be the case in this day and age? Why are not both parents caring for their children? Or, you know, why are more, you know, male siblings uh, not caring for their ailing parents? Why does it have to be the women? And I think that putting in things, uh, social infrastructures that improve childcare, really improve childcare, um, have shown to be really necessary. And also putting things in the work environment that do that as well. Not just the paid maternity and paternity leave, though that's a great start, but also things like emergency childcare, you know, facilities. Um, if you really want to help the whole human race, I think that that's what we need to do. Well, let me um, close out by asking a few questions about the future. What are the biggest opportunities and risks that you see about how the future will be so technology driven? 
Oh, I think it's absolutely fascinating. I don't know whether you read Homer Deus, uh, but uh, this whole idea that, you know, we'll be enhancing ourselves and so on with artificial intelligence and with um, and the whole biomedical space. Uh, I think that will happen. Uh, you know, I think that we're actually on that path. There is no going back from that. I mean, if uh, in its simplest form, if you as a parent, you know, know that you can make the child in your womb healthier by doing X and Y, you're doing it now, you know, according to what you eat and, and so forth. But in the future, there's going to be so much advance in medical science that we're going to be able to do do remarkable things. And I think if you step back from that, then um, then you'll be seen by society as, you know, somebody who hasn't cared about what the future generations are. So it's a real big moral dilemma. But of course, the converse of that is that you create you know, a race of super people who, you know, not everybody can be in that boat because of just we're all moving at different speed and so on towards the future. And so therefore, you're going to create a massive disparity between the haves and have-nots in the world. And I I, I think it's going to be incredibly challenging in the future. I think one of the things that we're even facing today in that respect is that, uh, you know, the big tech firms in Silicon Valley are, are doing things like giving their, um, their women employees the ability to freeze their eggs. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing. That's probably good to be able to have that as, a, you know, as a medical perk, if you like. But the, the, the issue really is if, if they're actually doing it on the basis of, oh, you can just delay having children to any time you want. Actually, the technology is not advanced enough for that yet. You know, there's still a quite high failure rate going down that route. And so therefore, making those trade-offs at a, at a point when you really don't have that real trade-off to make could be very damaging. There are so many different things that we could talk about in that field, let alone what artificial intelligence um, brings in terms of, you know, we mentioned about bias. We know that um, that you know, there's so many programs out there that have been built with inherent biases in them, and we have to continually, um, you know, address that bias and try and take it out. But sometimes it's just invisible to us. All of those people years ago who invented the Apple Watch that 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 monitored every single thing about your body, you know, how many steps you did, how many calories you ate, what your blood pressure was, but they actually didn't monitor your monthly cycle. Well, I mean, at least half of the planet were caring about that and the other half of the planet should have been. So, um, <laughs> you know, this is just to give some very, very simple uh, ideas about what technology could be, but all of the ethical dilemmas that it's going to throw up in the future and now. Oh, and already I know that, you know, I just feel like a, the, the, the ground has opened up underneath me because <laughs> there's so <laughs> many things that we could worry about. Um, well, what gives you optimism about the future? Well, I, I, you know, I feel very optimistic about things like the young people, you know, the, the Greta Thunbergs of the world reminding us that, you know, we don't have much time left about climate change. That's the downside of it. The upside is that she's super articulate and she's not alone. There are many young people around the planet that are thinking about this. 
but if you look at the corporate world as well, I mean, we moved so far from uh, shareholder management where we were just caring every quarter about what the stock price was and so on to stakeholder management, which is where we care about a wide variety of things, what's going on with our employees, what's going on in our markets, what about the wider society that we serve. And I see the whole corporate world moving there and um, and the whole sustainability agenda changing what we're thinking about in things like the capital markets. And so this gives me hope because if you actually see that happening, you know, it's telling you that the corporate world's responding to the need of things like climate change. And that's what we want. You know, the pandemic has shown how interconnected we were. I mean, if there's anything that shows us that we need to be ready to deal with things on a global basis, I mean, this pandemic's it. And I think, you know, the discussions that have happened among governments showing that, you know, you can't just have a popularist government, you can't live on an island. I mean, I know we live on an island, but we are all interconnected. We have to help each other. And I know in my own company, MasterCard, we've actually done things like invest in therapeutics and and we formed a foundation when we IPO'd and the MasterCard Foundation, which operates independently, uh, has the ability to spend the money on things, has pledged $1.3 billion to invest in uh, vaccines for Africa. So these are the kinds of things that give me massive hope because this is what the corporate world can do. Oh, see, that is a good note to end on. <laughs> Over a billion dollars for vaccines globally is a, is a very nice note to end on. Thank you so much for your time today. Um, I learned so much and have really, I will now be thinking about you in the North Sea and your fantastic career for the rest of the day. Thank you, Celia. Responsible is a podcast from the Center for Responsible Leadership at Imperial College Business School and is sponsored by City. Created with audio and editing support from Jack Monahan and Robert Moutry, who are Pronk Productions. I'm Celia Moore. I'll see you next time.